0: scripture reading from 1st Samuel chapter 14 we'll be reading uh, verses 24 through 35 to begin and the men of Israel had been hard pressed that day so Saul had laid an oath on the people saying "Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening and I am avenged on my enemies so none of the people had tasted food now when all the people came to the forest behold there was honey on the ground And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand, and dipped it in the honeycomb, and put his hand on his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Mishmash to Ijalon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he had built to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. After I graduated from college, uh, the time came for me to buy a, a new a new used car. Uh, so throughout high school, I had an old project car that my dad and I would work on from time to time. It was uh, fun to have, fun to work on, but really wasn't something that was practical. So as I was looking to, to get a job and kind of become an adult, it uh, wasn't really super practical for day-to-day commute. So I went with my dad uh, to a car dealership to to look for something new. Uh, Now most people, uh, when they're ready to buy a new car, they're prepared that it might be a long process. Uh, They might have to test drive several cars. Uh, You might have to visit multiple dealers. That it might not happen on the first day that you go to buy a car. It might take uh, two days, three days, maybe even a week or longer than that. Uh, But I did not have this mentality. When I was ready to have a new car, I really wanted a new car that day. So I went with my dad, we went to the first dealership, and it was kind of a small dealership, they didn't have a lot of options, and there was just really one car there that fit my budget, and so I kind of looked at my dad, I said, well, I guess I'll get this one. And he was very gracious to redirect me, he said, if you really like this car, uh, I bet it's still gonna be here when we come back. Let's go to other dealerships, check out other cars, test drive some other things, and see if this is really the car that you want. Confession, I didn't like the car at all. It was, uh, it was really small, it was not something that I really liked to look at, uh, but I was eager enough that I was willing to just buy this car. So we went to a couple other dealers, drove a few other cars, uh, I found a car that fit my budget, that had low mileage, that was well rated as far as like used cars for longevity. It was really the perfect fit. Uh, and thankfully, my, had my dad not been there, uh, I would have really ended up with a vehicle that was not something that I wanted. In my in my haste and eagerness to have something that was going to be helpful for me, uh, I was willing to make foolish choices to not really consider the cost of what I was doing. So had it not been for my dad, I would have ended up in a uh, a car that I never really liked. And it's a little bit like what we see here with Saul. So Saul has a goal that is set before him. We've seen uh, the beginning of this. There's a, the conquest of the Philistines. And it is a noble goal to defeat God's enemies. And so this is what is on Saul's mind. But what we see is in his his haste, his eagerness, his desire to defeat his enemies, that he acts foolishly, he acts irrationally, and ultimately he acts without faith. So what we'll see today is a, is a portrait of Saul that paints him as a, a faithless king. Uh, we'll see this in three sections. And our, our big idea that we'll see as contrasted with who Saul is is that Faith puts God first. Faith puts God first, or to use New Testament language, we say that faith seeks first the kingdom. Faith seeks first the kingdom, and so we'll see three portraits of Saul that, that describe him as a faithless king that show us to be uh, show us who the man who he really is, and we'll contrast that with what marks uh, a truly faithful king. We'll see that Saul is a disconnected king, that he is a distracted king. And that he is a demanding king so our first point uh, a disconnected king looking back at the passage that we we just read so we get a hint here in this first verse of the hardship that Saul causes for his people and so we read the the section that just came previously to this we read in verse 23 so the Lord saved Israel that day and we go to the next verse and it says in the men of Israel been hard pressed that day so it's this interesting juxtaposition where you have salvation for the people of israel but also they are under hardship and the reason for that becomes really evident in the previous passage jonathan's leadership was at the forefront that jonathan through that god through jonathan brought salvation to israel and now we see the kind of leader that saul is that he is the kind of leader that brings hardship to his people and he makes an oath here and it's not entirely clear if the people are hard-pressed because Saul makes this oath, or if they are hard-pressed and then Saul makes the oath. Either way, uh, what we see is that Saul is is really, he's disconnected from his people, and that his decisions are causing them hardship. And one comment here about uh, Saul taking an oath, and so Saul's goal really is a a noble thing, is something good. He's he's trying to defeat God's enemy, so we shouldn't be um, totally thrown off by this. And this Taking an oath with your troops might be something that a king would use to to, to motivate them to kind of finish through the day to finish off the battle. Uh, so that might be a little bit of what Saul is doing here. But we do have a, a small hint about Saul's motives here in uh, in verse 24. He says uh, this curse that he places is until I am avenged on my enemies. This is a very personal agenda for Saul. It's about his vengeance upon his enemies. What we see is that Saul is disconnected in three ways here. He's disconnected from his son, he's disconnected from his troops, and uh, most importantly, he is disconnected from God. Verse 27, tells us that Jonathan had not heard the oath. So Jonathan is disconnected from his father, and this is not the first time that this has happened, and this should be a concerning pattern that we see in the life of Saul. Saw this in the previous chapter where Saul is kind of sitting back under the pomegranate tree when he should be pursuing after the enemies, but instead his son goes, and he has no clue what's going on. And once again, Jonathan doesn't know what his dad is doing, and his dad doesn't know what he is doing. And um, secondly, he is disconnected from his, his troops. We've already seen in verse 24 that the, the troops are hard-pressed. We see a repetition of the troops being faint in verses uh, twenty eight and thirty one In verse thirty one it says that they are they are very faint, and so this oath that Saul has taken has caused an undue burden for his people and Jonathan puts into words what we 're picking up from the narrator 's comments and he he says it very directly that that Saul has acted foolishly in verse twenty nine he says My father has troubled the land he 's causing trouble for the land, and interestingly enough this oath that's supposed to guarantee victory in battle has caused the opposite effect Jonathan in verse 30 says because you have not had an opportunity to eat because you are all very faint that this victory over the Philistines has not been great so what Saul is trying to accomplish by his own oath is really having a reverse effect and ironically enough that the the one who disobeyed the oath is the one who is most ready for battle Jonathan has eaten some of the honey and it says that his eyes have become bright and there's a, a powerful uh, connection here to Psalm 17, verses 7 and 8, where it talks about the, the word of the Lord that revives the soul, that, uh, that enlightens the eyes. It's kind of this, this similar effect where, where uh, Jonathan is, is being, um, he's been given life, he's been given energy, he has a, uh, his eyes are brightened up as the language. And so what we see is that, that, that God's word that enlivens the soul, that uh, enlightens the eyes, has the opposite effect of what Saul's word has. Saul's word causes hardship for his people. He is disconnected from his troops and what they actually need. A good king should know what his troop needs and work for their good. And ultimately, the root here is that Saul is disconnected from God. And so we see this, this scene where the, the following scene, starting in verse 31, where the people are very faint, and immediately after they have come and they defeated the Philistines, they, they come upon the spoil and they start, they start eating uh, and they start eating the, the, the meat with the blood, which is in violation of Leviticus 17 and Deuteronomy chapter 12. And if we kind of read through this passage quickly, we might see, see, think that Saul, you know, well, actually he's kind of doing a good job. He is, uh, you know, he's trying to stop the people from sinning. He builds an altar to the Lord. But it's worth noting that Saul is not the one who notices that the people are sinning. It's somebody else that brings it to his attention. So his response there is, is reactionary to somebody else. And furthermore, the author makes it a point to comment that this is the first altar that Saul has built to the Lord. Now, if we contrast that with somebody like Abraham, so we ask ourselves, how, you know, how long has Saul been king? How long has it been and Saul has not yet built an author? And we don't actually know in terms of years, but we do know in length in terms of the biblical narrative that in chapter 10 here that Saul was anointed king. Uh, To go four chapters, that's kind of a long time in biblical narrative. And if we look at uh, the story of Abraham, when he is called in Genesis chapter 12, it's just a few verses later that he builds an altar to the Lord. Just a few verses later. What this reveals to us is that for Saul, God is merely an afterthought. Saul is ultimately disconnected from God, that it's not the first thing that's on his mind. And Saul's leadership here is exactly what Jesus criticizes the Pharisees of. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 4, Jesus is talking about the Pharisees, and he says, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. He's placing heavy burdens on his people. He's making their lives harder. The the, the characteristics of good, faithful leaders should not be those who cause hardship to their people. It should be those that seek to lighten the burden of those that they lead. Now, not all of us in here have the same type of leadership roles, but we all have uh, people that we're able to influence in our lives. It may be people in our small group, uh, our family. Uh, If you have kids, it's your your children, if you're a boss. We all have opportunities to, to lead and show spiritual leadership. And the application for us is that we would not lay a heavy burden, but that we would seek first the kingdom. It's easy to think about the things that we have to do, and try to to scheme a plan, to try and come up with what is going to help us to be successful. That's what we see with Saul here, is he doesn't trust that God is going to give victory, but he, he feels like he needs to do a little something extra. What happens when we we do that is oftentimes that we cause undue challenges for those around us and so we we should ask ourselves what's our immediate reaction when we're faced with challenges or if we have a a a project or task in front of us where we're not quite sure what the next step is is our is our first reaction to to turn to God to seek him to seek his will or is our first reaction to to turn to our own schemes to try and figure it out uh, the best that we can we ought to to seek first the kingdom um, and trust that God will come through. Let's now turn to our, our second section here, a, a distracted king, looking at verses 36 through 46. We'll, we'll read through it. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until morning, until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. But they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, "Do what seems good to you." Therefore Saul said, "O Lord, God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me, or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord, God of Israel, give Urim, but if this guilt is in your people, give Thumim." And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, "Cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan, and Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan. Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. And Saul said, God, do so to me, and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan. So that he did not die Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines And the Philistines went to their own place Now Saul's distance from God is, is further developed here In this passage He sets out to finish the job against the Philistines In verse 36 it says Let us go down after the Philistines by night uh, The people are in agreement With uh, Saul's action here His troops say do whatever seems good to you And then again there's a, a pause Kind of an interjection from somebody else That causes Saul to stop It's from the priest who says, Let us seek God in this place. And the distance of Saul between between him and God is magnified in the fact that God does not answer Saul. And so Saul becomes preoccupied, trying to figure out why. Why is God no longer speaking to him? And he begins this ordeal using lots, trying to figure out who among this whole battalion is guilty of sin. And ironically enough, he says in verse 39, he says, For as the Lord lives who saves Israel... Though it be in my son Jonathan, he shall surely die. He notes that it's the Lord, he recognizes that it's the Lord who saves Israel. And then he names his son, which he still doesn't quite grasp that that God has used his son instead of him to save Israel. That just happened in this previous passage. And so Saul, again, has no clue what God is doing here. He doesn't see that that God has kind of bypassed Saul because of his faithlessness. And he is going through other means to accomplish his purposes. But Saul is so preoccupied with trying to figure out why God is not answering him, so he goes in this ordeal of casting lots. And it's an interesting scene, and uh, lots is not something that we really uh, do today to make decisions. Uh, As you may have noticed, we don't really do that in uh, church. Uh, If you're interested in reading more about casting lots, uh, there's a really interesting book by Vern Poitras. It's called Chance and the Sovereignty of God. It's a really long book. There's a short section in there about casting lots. Uh, The PDF is online, so you can go and just read that section if you're interested at all. But the, the main thing that we should understand about lots is that the hand of God is involved in all things. Uh, Proverbs sixteen thirty three says that the lot is cast in the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. The, the New Living Translation puts it this way. It says, we may throw the dice, but the Lord determines how they land. So it's a, a tool that's given by God, at least during the Old Testament, in the New Testament in some places, to, to make some decisions. Um, I know We see this in the story of Jonah, as Andrew's talked about, when they're trying to figure out who on the boat has sinned. But ultimately, we have to remember that that it's God that is helping to make these decisions through these lots. And so Saul is using two things. He's used an oath, and now he's using lots. What we should see is that these are not really authorized uses uh, of these things that Saul is doing. That really, Saul kind of has his own agenda. He's got an issue that's before him, and he's not really seeking after God, but he's kind of trying to take these things that God has given him and use them for his own purposes and this is very characteristic of Saul is that he is not one who's prone to act by faith but he's really prone to act in a way that is self-serving something that he can kind of do on his own and the tension builds in this scene is that the the troops know the troops know that Jonathan has tasted this honey and uh, the the narrator here is careful to mention that the the people don't answer him two times that, that he says that specifically that they they don't speak up So the tension continues to build, and we start feeling like, is Saul really going to do this? His own foolish word is going to cause the death of his own son. And just before uh, he is determined to kill his son, in verse 45, finally the people speak out, they stop Saul's hand, and Jonathan is ransomed. And this is a strikingly similar passage uh, to one that we find in Genesis chapter 22, where Abraham is called to sacrifice his son Isaac, Uh, And it's another kind of last-minute drama where just at the last moment when Saul raises the knife, or Saul, Saul, um, Abraham raises the knife that the angel of the Lord speaks in and says, Abraham, now you have shown that you trust the Lord. Do not uh, not, uh, sacrifice your son. On the surface, these two stories are very similar, but as we take a closer look, they're actually quite different. In our passage today, Saul has been bound by his own word, in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham is bound by the word of God. Abraham acts by faith. Hebrews 11:19 tells us that when Abraham is acting by faith, that he, he knew that God was able even to raise him, Isaac, from the dead. That Abraham is walking forward in faith, and Saul is doing the opposite. He's walking forward without faith, bound to his own word, to nearly lose his son. Now, if this ordeal of almost uh, taking the life of his own son is not enough to convince us that Saul is a faithless king, there's a subtle thing that the author does here to show us that, that Saul is maybe even a little bit worse than we, uh, we thought in this passage. In verse 46, if you turn your attention there, it says, Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. The start of this section, verse 36, it says, Let us go down after the Philistines. Saul goes down after the Philistines, and then he goes up from the Philistines, and he has done nothing to accomplish the purpose that he set out for. He's been distracted, so preoccupied, preoccupied about who violated his oath, why God is not speaking to him that he accomplishes nothing that he set to do. Uh, a short illustration for this: uh, So Jacob, a couple weeks ago, he shared about how he used to kind of walk around at work, change directions. He's trying to be efficient. Um, Sometimes I do something similar at home, but it's not out of uh, trying to be efficient. It's that I, I get distracted very easily, and so I might be heading upstairs to do something, and my wife will ask me, say, hey, can you bring down a couple extra diapers? And I go upstairs, and I was like, oh, I should grab my red hoodie while I'm up here because I want to wear that today. And I open the closet. The hoodie's not in there. And I was like, ah, oh, man, I don't know where I put that. And I come back downstairs, and my wife says, uh, where are the diapers? And she's like, and what did you do up there? Uh, nothing. I didn't do anything up there. And that's maybe a... Uh, uh, a simple illustration, but where it's so easy for us to get distracted. Uh, there are, are so many things that g- grab for our attention. Uh, and Jacob, I know, talked about last week how sometimes we spend so much time preoccupied trying to decide what we should do. Uh, but God has been so faithful to, to tell us what to do. At a very basic level, there are certain things that God has given us to do. So our application from this point is, is the same as application from the first point. is seek first the kingdom. Attend to the things that God has given diligently. We know that we should pray. We should spend our time in prayer. We know that we should gather with the saints on Sundays to to praise God, to be nourished by his word. Let us gather together to be nourished, to be encouraged, that we might be shaped by God. Let us not um, have our own concerns and preoccupations distract us from what God has given us to do. Let us seek first the kingdom and trust that God will provide and lead. Let's move on to our final section, our final point, uh, a demanding king, a demanding king, verses 47 through 52. When Saul had taken the kingship over, over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, against the Philistines, wherever he turned, he routed them, and he did valiantly instruct the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, Malkishua, and the names of his two daughters were these: the name of the firstborn was Merab, and the name of the younger Michal. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahamaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. Now on the tail end of this section, uh, really a section that reaches uh, all the way back to chapter 13, we kind of find a, a surprising summary of Saul's kingship here. Uh, it's surprising because it seems to strike a positive tone about Saul. So we've had all these negative things about Saul, and now it sounds like maybe the author has uh, changed his mind or he wants to give, you know, uh, just a slight nod to Saul, uh, and so one thing I think that we should understand here is that there is, there's nuance when we understand people, that humans are, are complex, uh, and it's very difficult to, to paint broad brush strokes to say that this person is entirely this way or entirely that way. And so at the, at the very least, we should acknowledge that Saul does play a positive role for the people of God, at least to a certain degree, that there is victory over some of God's enemies, that there is uh, defense and, and protection for the people of God through Saul as king. Which is, which is important and helpful. But as we, as we take a closer look and unpack this passage, we see that this really isn't the rave review of Saul that we might think it to be just upon first reading. When we consider what is the value that is being highlighted of Saul here, see that Saul is a valiant king in battle, that he's a successful king, and additionally that Saul has, has a family, that he has, uh, that he has sons, daughters, uh, You know, that's a, a good thing to, to be able to have a family. But what we see is that um, Saul is really only successful according to the judge of history is, is the way one commentator put it. And that, that really just means like that Saul is only successful really from an external perspective, kind of by human measures, by things that we can see from the outside. We say, look, he seems to be a good leader of his army. Uh, he has a family. And for all intenses, for intents and purposes, that's, uh, that's a good thing. But as we look uh, further on in this chapter, just really at the final verse, there's three notes that I want to draw from this final verse that really show us the kind of king that Saul is. The first is this. It says that there was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. We started out today talking about how at the end of the previous section, verse 23 of this chapter, it said that, the, so the Lord saved Israel that day. At that point in time, it seemed that the, the defeat of the Philistines was all but a done deal, pretty much guaranteed. Now, through Saul's foolishness, his oath, um, his attempt to cast lots to try and figure out why God is not talking to him, the Philistines are still there, and the Philistines are going to be a problem for Saul for his whole career as king over Israel. It's not until David is installed as king and we get to 2 Samuel chapter 8 that the Philistines are actually defeated, as God uh, called Saul to do. So Saul has not done what God has called him to do. So this is a, a judgment against Saul's leadership. The second thing that we should see is this, uh, the last part of the verse, where it says, And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached them to himself. This is uh, language taken directly from 1 Samuel chapter 8, where Samuel warns the people about the kind of king that they're going to get that they have demanded. And he says that he will take your strong men and he will put them to work for himself. And this is what Saul is doing. He, he is taking the people of Israel uh, for his own service, for his own military service. And Saul is succeeding doing the very thing that Samuel warned the people about. And the final thing that we note here is that there is a conspicuous silence. There's no mention of God in this summary. It's a, a surprisingly short summary about Saul. We have a, There's a similar summary of Samuel in, uh, sorry, not Samuel, of David in 2 Samuel chapter 8, uh, talking about uh, uh, David, as a, as a military leader, talks about his successes as a king, uh, and it twice mentions uh, the Lord, that it was the Lord that made David successful in battle. So we might understand here and say that, you know, Saul is successful, but Saul is far from God, which is really not success at all. That what Saul has accumulated might be worth something uh, by earthly measure, but it's not worth much by God's measure. Uh, if you were around in the 90s, uh, you might remember Beanie Babies, uh, so these small, plush, uh, stuffed animals. Uh, they, you know, they weren't, they didn't cost a lot when you bought them from the store, but this kind of craze broke out where people were just obsessed with Beanie Babies. It came this collector's thing where you're trying to collect these first editions, and certain ones were worth thousands of dollars, and so uh, it was kind of this wild thing, and I did a little bit of research on it this week, and I found out there's a bunch of uh, crime that came along with it, and so, I mean, you have Uh, People, first of all, getting trampled at the stores as people are swarming, trying to get Beanie Babies. Uh, Then you have kind of underground sales where people are reselling things, selling counterfeits, um, robberies, all these things going on uh, over these really valuable things. And about uh, towards the end of the 90s, the value just crashed for Beanie Babies, It just crashed. Now, some of kind of the original items are still worth something. But for the vast majority of people that got kind of caught up in that frenzy, that invested their money in it, uh, they got nothing back for their investment. They have these small, plush, stuffed animals that are worth next to nothing. They've accumulated a lot of stuff, but it's worth nothing. That's, uh, that's what Saul has. He's accumulated a lot of stuff. He's done a lot of things, but it's really worth nothing in the eyes of God. And this is what Jesus gets at in Mark chapter 8. He says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? And the answer is, is nothing. That all our striving and scheming, our own plotting, is not, is not going to gain us anything from God. It is not going to gain us success that matters. It's really worth nothing at the end of the day. And I think it's a, a challenge for us. Uh, it challenges us to, to seek first the kingdom. And it's easy for us to get caught up in doing things that seem good from an external perspective. Uh, it's, uh, it's good to get good grades in college, uh, to try and do well in your studies. Uh, It's good to think about the future of your kids, to try and leave something behind for them. Uh, Good to be a good boss, a good employee, uh, to try to leave a positive legacy. But if we do those things and we are distant from God, really we're being successful at the wrong things. To be successful at something without God is really to not be successful at all. We must seek first the kingdom. These earthly accolades will fade. They lose their value don't be successful at the wrong things. Um, Psalm 127 puts it succinctly for us to understand how this works. It says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. No matter what you do, unless God is involved with it, that what you work at, you work at in vain. And Kind of on the, the flip side, the positive side in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says to give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So it's an encouragement to us to know that the work that we do for the Lord is not done in vain. May we seek first the kingdom. Saul, at every turn, is somebody who seeks the kingdom second. He is a, a faithless king. He's really concerned about himself first and only the things of God as much as they might benefit him. We should be challenged by that picture to not follow in Saul's footsteps, that we might not be considered faithless. We're challenged to follow a different path. But I want us to, to, to conclude by reflecting on how we ought to seek the kingdom first. Now, it's given some, kind of, some practical ways that we might think a little bit differently than Saul, but I think the, the key to seeking first the kingdom is seeing the king. We have to see the king of the kingdom in order to seek first the kingdom. As we consider Christ, he is the opposite of Saul. Christ is not one who is disconnected, but one who is deeply connected to his people that he cares for his people deeply. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Christ does not seek to burden us. Christ is not a distracted king. And even when we see Christ in the New Testament, when he's he's on his way to heal someone, and he seemingly gets distracted to heal someone else, and that first person he was going to heal dies, and it seems like, Jesus, if you just would have been going, you would have been able to heal this person too. Jesus doesn't get distracted, he knows what he's doing, and that he goes on to to raise that person from the dead, and we should have confidence knowing that Jesus is always on mission, that he doesn't get distracted, that he will be faithful to direct us on our own paths. And finally, Jesus is not a demanding king, he is not out for earthly glory. During his temptation in Matthew 4, uh, and elsewhere in the Gospels, that he has has every opportunity to, to receive from the devil all earthly glory, to take... All the earthly kingdoms under his, his foot to have them bow down and to worship him, and he declines it. And he leaves from his temptation and he begins his ministry, and he does what? He begins to proclaim the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is not about the kingdom of man, building anything that is successful from, from kind of our own limited purvey, but he is concerned with the things of God. He is concerned with a heavenly kingdom that promises us far more than anything on this earth could ever offer us. As we, sing, as we see the King, we have assurance, and we also have an invitation. For those who are in Christ by faith, we have assurance that our, our King cares for us, that He lifts our burdens, that He won't lead us astray, that He will do what He says He will do, that He will bring us into His heavenly glory, that we will have rest with Him uh, in the life to come. But if your faith is not in Christ today, we have a, a, an invitation if you haven't quite been, been sure about who Christ is or what he does, is we have a, an invitation today because there are plenty of kings out there like Saul. They may not even be, be humans in that sense. As uh, you know, Owen talked about our idolatry. There are things that we may seek after that demand things of us that really don't give us what they promise to give us. But in Christ, we have a true and faithful king. He invites us to put our faith in the faithful one who is able to lift your burdens and to grant you a glory that nothing earthly could ever match. Let's pray in his name now. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you that you are a great and faithful King, uh, that you call us to yourself, that you nourish us by your word. God, we know that we are prone to be faithless, uh, that we trust ourselves, uh, that we think that we can uh, control the outcomes of our own life. Lord, pray that you would slow us down to seek you first, uh, to attend to you in prayer, to listen to your word, uh, to trust you as you lead us, God. We pray that by your spirit we might seek first your kingdom for the sake of your glory. In your name we pray. Amen.